how many times have I know in my career, I've gone up to somebody and said, I'm glad we shipped that on time. But if I would have had one more engineer because I saw X happen, we could have got done a month earlier, right? And then your boss goes or, or whoever's in charge of that goes, oh, you should have just told me. I would have been more than gladly given you that, right? And you just go, oh, oh, you slap your head and you go, ah, this could have been, you know, I could have had an easier life, you know, over the X amount of months that I had been working on this. And so that's why I encourage folks to at least think about one each because it gets folks in the mindset of thinking about not just the bad, but also the good, right? What do we care about? And PMs often talk about, we always talk about priorities and, and what we care about, right? Like, it's not just the negative, right? It's also the positive, right? What are we willing to invest in at the cost of everything else? And so getting that on the table can really help, you know, my main point of what I think product managers should be doing, right? Which is increase the decision fitness of the company or team that they're on. Creating great products isn't just about product managers and their day-to-day -day interactions with developers. It's about how an organization supports products as a whole the systems, the processes, and cultures in place that help companies deliver value to their customers. With the help of some boundary-pushing guests and inspiration from your most pressing product questions, we'll dive into this system from every angle and help you think like a great product leader. This is the Product Thinking Podcast. Here's your host, Melissa Perry. Welcome to another episode of the Product Thinking Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Adam Thomas, who's a very experienced product leader, currently leading a very large team and growing, we were just talking about this, at Smart Recruiters. So welcome, Adam. Thank you, Melissa. Yeah, great to have you. So we knew each other from New York, and then I moved out of New York, and I'm sad that we don't see each other at our little Agile Experience Design dinners anymore. But tell our audience about you. I've known you for a long time. So share with them how you got into product management, how you've gotten into product leadership, all the wonderful stuff you do. I am a product leader. How did I become one? So my story starts off like a lot of folks. I, I tried to make a company. And so I made this company called The Gamer Studio. And this was way back in the early 2000s where I felt the need to build things from scratch. Right. So I built my own CMS and I said, I want to talk about video games. So I assembled a ragtag crew of folks and we just built a video game site. And that video game site grew. I think we ended up around the mid, I'd say kind of mid-tier video game sites, just enough to like be respected, jump into a few things like podcasting and video early. But I kind of lost my heart for it and ended up selling it after a couple of years. After that, I went to, that's when I first came to New York and ended up at this company called DTCC, where, believe it or not, I ended up working on mainframes. Right. I was a mainframe engineer for a few years. And then suddenly a mentor just kind of came by and said, Hey, I got this product that I need you to like handle. Product management isn't a term that was widely kind of thrown around then. Right. You just kind of started doing that type of stuff. So I started kind of building out the experience for our users. I started doing interviews. I started managing that software development lifecycle. Uh, next thing you know, that kind of grew. And the next thing you know, I had about five products. Up to and including, you know, our new initiatives. So I started working with things like AI relatively early at the beginning of the 2010s. And then got pretty bored because <laughs> I was working in finance and that world can get very, let's just not, right? <laughs> and so I... <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so uh, I decided to jump into another startup called Arcade School. And I'd been inspired by my alt-MBA journey. So for those who don't know, Alt-MBA is a program started by Seth Godin, 
basically it was a, a leadership retreat. And the impactful thing about it was it was a whole brand new way of learning, right? It was offline, but it was very immersive. And so I ended up joining that, getting really inspired, as well as talking to a lot of video game friends from that are trying to join the industry and, and some recruiters that are trying to hire for the industry. And I think it remains to this day, entry-level employment is really screwed up at these video game companies, your rock stars and your EAs. And so we tried to fix it. It's been about a year doing that. And shout out to, to Wes Kale because she's now killing it with her company, right? Same kind of, we're same alt-MBA folks and we're out here in the world. So to my fellow alt-MBAers, howdy. After that, ended up at Philosophy where I started working for Emerson, uh, who we mentioned earlier. Started doing uh, some work for companies like Google, PwC, Casper, left there, ended up as a head of product for a company called Informed, where I worked in Amazon world, focusing on helping third-party folks do pricing for their products. Right? if you ever wondered why prices change on Amazon, buy me a drink and I'll walk you through it. It's, it's really <laughs> visiting and unfair, but it's Amazon. What can you expect? And lastly, that led me here to Smart Recruiters, where I'm leading the enterprise experience teams, figure out how to help our customers get from high to hundred. That's great. So I also worked in finance when I got started. I was working at Barclays Bank and I was a developer who like weaseled my way back into product because I hated developing. Um, <laughs> so when you were saying that, I was like, oh, this resonates so much with me right now. And then I left and I went to be a product manager at OpenSky, which was a very tiny startup, but I had an offer from Amazon. And when you were talking about the pricing stuff, that made me think about it because I interviewed there as a product manager. But when they talked about product manager back in the day, then it was literally managing the products they sold on the website. So when I got there, I thought it was more like a software product management job. And it was like, no, can you figure out the pricing for these Adobe software products? And I was like, oh, no, this is not what I want to do. <laughs> like, This is not it at all. But I thought that was really funny. I was like, oh, I actually know how some of that works as well because of that interview that I didn't really mean to take. <laughs> yeah, like it's so fascinating to see how that has evolved. You know, spending a couple of years in Amazon world, like it's all very automated now. And it's a huge part of their strategy in terms of keeping people engaged. Amazon's very much like a casino in that respect. Where, and they've really trained it to be that way for both buyer and seller. And so having all these, <laughs> learning all these machinations and, and having to sit there and kind of figure out these algorithms and, and seeing how AI gets involved and all that fun stuff. Like it's, it's a journey. And I think the biggest through line is Amazon wins. Whatever happens. The casino to the core right there. <laughs> the house always wins. The house of Amazon. <laughs> that is really fascinating. So if you haven't seen online, everybody should check this out. Adam is a speaker and a writer and he makes fantastic blog posts. I always like your concepts that you come up with, but you're, you've done some really cool writing. And one of the most recent articles, I don't know if it's very recent, it's January. You published it in January, yeah is about survival metrics. And when I read this, I was like, yes, this is like what we're missing. Like we talk about success metrics so much, but Adam came up with this concept of survival metrics, which I think is so awesome and so needed when we talk about product strategy and product management. So can you talk a little bit about like what are survival metrics and how did you come up with that concept? Sure. And so just a very short definition is survival metrics help a product team determine if an initiative is worth investing in more, pivoting or stopping completely. And how I came up with this was I spent a lot of time building products. And one of the things that happens when you start building is it's almost like a train, right? Like once you start 
making decisions, once you start thinking about what the customer needs, once you start thinking about revenue, once you start thinking about all of these things, what started off as a project that malleable and we want to do the right thing and we want to be iterative can soon turn into something that is just, yeah, as I said, a runaway train where there's a bunch of bias involved, where people ultimately want to ship it because they feel like shipping it, right? And so in psychology, this is called the sunk cost fallacy, right? Where once we start investing into something, we want to see it through, even if it's not really good for our ultimate goal. So survival metrics is really born out of that psychology. And really what I've seen with product development teams over years that I've been doing this and how they aren't able to make decisions as it relates to the survival of a product over things like success and, and revenue. I love that concept. And you really dive into it in this article too about different types of survival metrics, right? Like the different types of forms that they could actually take. And one of them is, for example, like pivoting, like a pivot statement. And then you've got invest statements. What are those like actions that you should be thinking about when you create a survival metric? Like what's the mark of a great survival metric? I think the mark of a great survival metric is action. And that metric should be a kernel that helps the people, as they look at it, understand what action needs to be taken and why it's important, right? So a bad survival metric would be like, you know, yeah, if things start, you know, if things go bad, I think we should change direction, right? What does bad mean? <laughs> what does change direction mean? Why is this important to anyone? right? Those things get quickly brushed aside because people start to go into biased territory, right? What means bad to you is not bad for me. I think a great uh, survival metric, right? Thinking about like a pivot statement should look like something around the lines of like, if AWS, if the AWS bill is projected to jump 10% more due to a production release, we need to discuss ways to lower the projected bill immediately, right? In that statement, there are actions, there's the concept, there's the subject, right? We know it's the AWS. We know what the delta is or what the change is for us to start thinking about what the pivot or the pivot. And then we, we actually, in, in, that, in that metric, we also have uh, what we'll do, right? We'll discuss ways to lower that projected bill. And so it's a jumping off point that folks are agreed to before we even begin to get into that sunken cost. So when we're thinking about survival metrics as it relates to like a product strategy or a strategy deployment, right? I think about a lot of things with like, we've got the company level success metrics and the direction we want to go. Like, let's expand into the new markets. Let's like expand geographically or whatever it is to start, you know, increasing our revenue and costs at the top. Then we've got our like product initiatives that are all about the big, we were just talking about this right before we start recording, but like those big, I really liked your phrase for this, like tent pole items that are going to be the things that we would want to go sell and get like customers excited about, right? Like those are the huge initiatives that like move a company forward. So that's how we kind of think about those. And then we've got the feature development, which I call options right on the bottom. So each one of those usually has some kind of success metrics. How do you think about survival metrics when it comes to those types of things, right? Like whether it's initiatives or at the feature level or at the company level, are there different levels? Do they tie closely to the strategy? Like where do they fit into this kind of deployment? It's important to note that your metric strategy, regardless of whatever metrics they are, are tied to an anchor, right? That's your vision and strategy, really your mission vision strategy. And so before even beginning thinking about how the fidelity should look like between these kind of different sizes of, of releases, right? We got to make sure that it all kind of hangs back on that anchor. 
And so for bigger releases, like your tentpole releases, it's important to make sure that these discussions happen as early as possible. For things like tentpole releases, these are the things that are going to drive your company forward, right? And so because they're that thing that's going to drive the company forward, they're the ones that's going to be, they are the releases that are going to have the most bias attached to them. Once you start going to things where, you know, your director levels, your directors care about or your VPs care about, the things that the CEO is asking for status for, making sure that you have a story that's tied to these metrics becomes extremely important because once that machinery starts going, kind of you're off into the races, which is a very different when you compare that to smaller, like, you know, kind of feature level, not to be flippant, but like, you know, we're going to change the button here or we're going to add this like different language here, right? These are things that may get certain customers excited, but they're not going up to that leadership level. Yeah, they're not like moving. Those things don't like move the company forward, right? Like if you're changing the thing on a button, it's usually not going to create massive amounts of revenue. Otherwise, and if it does, like, wow, <laughs> you just you just did something crazy like that. That was probably a good move, but I don't know what you had on that button before. So buy here. Like you just made the change to buy here. Yeah. To buy. Big change. <laughs> it's very important to think about the story as these changes become more visible, right? As these changes to your system become more visible. Thinking about the metric as it relates to the story, as it relates to your strategy, vision, mission becomes super critical because you're dealing with a whole lot of bias and a whole lot of people care. Having Being very prepared with these metrics and getting pre-approvals, getting people in, engaged early in the process matters so much more at that stage. For sure. I like too with these metrics, they're not just, when I talk about my strategy deployment, like process stuff that I, I write about in the book, a lot of times I talk about things like guardrails. We're going this way and this is how we define success. But then there are guardrails about like, what should we not be doing? And that's what I particularly loved reading things like the stop or the pivot type of metrics that you had in here. Like those are guardrails. And I never like really explained in the book what that meant. I just was like, oh, it's things that you should, <laughs> like, you should look for. And it, you know, it was just not something I was able to get to in the amount of pages I had. But to me, I'm like reading your things and I'm like, yes, this is what I meant by guardrails. Like nobody's doing an initiative or building a feature. It's usually not an initiative where it's like reduce our Amazon costs, like you just said, right? It's like, we're building this new feature, we're building this new temple or something, but we can't actually do that if it starts to cost more to actually have that feature than it does to get the revenue from that feature. And that's why I think these are perfect because we never stop to actually think about that. Like what would make this feature not be feasible, right? We could be making tons of revenue off of it, but that doesn't mean that it's actually worthwhile. That ties perfectly to the work you've been doing in product ops, right? Who cares if a feature exists and looks beautiful and, and works well if it's going to drive your company to bankruptcy, <laughs> right? And so installing guardrails like this or, or survival metrics that really speak to the survivability or the margins of whatever that we're pushing out gives people an understanding in a really simple way what those guardrails are and why they're important. So that when you're going around telling the story about this feature, when you run into those guardrails, it's not a surprise that we need to like, slow down and, and, and figure things out. And B, you already have that kernel to the story, right? Of what is going to drive that next change. Because as you well know, rule number one is always do not let people find out 
right? <laughs> because that's when bias really starts to jump in and take over. So as long as we're continuing telling this story, right, we're continuing to push these metrics out. Again, people can start to understand those guardrails and aren't afraid of them. Yeah. So when you're thinking about developing these two, right, let's say you've got part of your strategy where we actually did validate that we want to go after this feature, we start to build it. When do you start to think about your survival metrics? And how do you come up with them, right? Because some of them, I could see people just not even thinking of, right, to get there. So like, what's your process for really sitting down and going, this is how I develop my survival metrics? The beautiful thing about survival metrics is it's something that builds with the company. It's tied to company culture. It's tied to how the company thinks, right? How they operate, not how they aspire to operate, but how they operate. And what I mean by that is the way you get these metrics is that you you go out and you ask a couple of questions that try to get at what are the things that people care about as it relates to whatever we're building or just whatever their incentives are as they go out and do their job, you know, nine to five. Right? So some questions are, what are some non-negotiables for your team? What are some non-negotiables for the company? Or what are some markers that you need to see to commit more resources to this initiative? Or how much are we willing to let this initiative cost us? And these questions can take a whole bunch of spins and different paths, depending on who you're talking to. If you're talking to a finance person or an ops person, that's a completely different answer to how much are we willing to let this initiative cost us than if you're talking to an engineering lead or director. They're thinking in terms of resources. The other is thinking in terms of of money, right? And so as you start to build out what this map looks like, some of the things are going to be project dependent. Hey, we want to make sure that this is supposed to be a revenue generating profit, profitable project versus things that, okay, this is an investment. We don't mind kind of letting this be a a loss leader for a bit. But the other things that you're going to pull out are things that are company specific, right? So your teams or your company's real values are going to start to pull themselves out the more projects you do this with, right? For example, in the article, I talk about how company that I'm using, Bobco, uh, (laughs) eventually they get to the point that they know that they do not want to use third-party sources in, in terms of pull out data, right? That may not come up the first time. It may come up the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth time. And now you have an actual value that your company lives by. And so, again, as you use this more and more and more, right, you get to this kind of flywheel effect where you start to understand the culture of whatever the company that you're working for or this, this, uh, or what you're doing. And also, you start to build out kind of what the difference is, speaking to what we were talking about earlier, between these large tentpole initiatives, what are the survival metrics that tend to pop up there versus initiative versus features and everything in between. We also have like, you have statements that are stop, pivot, invest. Do you recommend that each project to each thing that you're working on have one of each? Is it like some of them lend towards stop, some of them lend towards invest? When it comes to each of these things, I like for teams to think about at least one each because especially as it relates to invest, because it's easy to talk about things, to, how to stop things or why to stop things or even pivoting. But the invest statements right, can also be just as important. How many times have, I know in my career, I've gone up to somebody and said, I'm glad we shipped that on time. But if I would have had one more engineer because I saw X happen, we could have got done a month earlier, right? And then your boss goes or, or whoever's in charge of that goes, oh, you should have just told me. 
I would have been, I would have more than gladly given you that, right? And you just go, oh, oh, you slap your head and you go, ah, this could have been, you know, I could have had an easier life, you know, over the X amount of months that I had been working on this. And so that's why I encourage folks to at least think about one each because it gets folks in the mindset of thinking about not just the bad, but also the good, right? What do we care about? And PMs often talk about, we always talk about priorities and, and what we care about, right? Like, it's not just the negative, right? It's also the positive, right? What are we willing to invest in at the cost of everything else? And so getting that on the table can really help, you know, my main point of what I think product managers should be doing, right? Which is increase the decision fitness of the company or team that they're on. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I also like that structure, even for like training new product managers about the things that they don't often think about. And I know you're in the process, you just told me about onboarding eight new product managers, which is pretty impressive that you found eight like in this market right now, which one, I feel like everybody who asked me how to hire a product manager should go ask you that now because I have not found eight product managers freely out there, but that's pretty cool. So when you're bringing them in, how are you training them like on survival metrics? Like what's your process for onboarding people and getting them up to speed with your way of working? Well, first I got to shout out Kate Lido. I think her work is phenomenal on this stuff. And not a self-brag, but I do have a little bit of me in the book. I have, I have a column. So for hooray for Kate and hooray for me. Go pick up Hiring Product Managers. It's a great book. And Kate was on our podcast too early on and she did mention you too. Ha <laughs> 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 ah, I'm around. <laughs> so I think onboarding is difficult, right? Because not only you have to figure out who your PM is versus who they presented themselves to be versus the company needs and versus what the company thinks a product person does, right? And so as a product leader, you're constantly kind of dancing around this. However, there are some bedrock things that are important to you. Survival metrics is one for me. And so as I bring on new PMs, this is usually a new concept to them. They may have read your book and, and thought about guardrails, but like, how do you operationalize that? And so what I tend to do is I set aside time and give smaller projects where I can start to look at how they assess these things. Because as much as I love survival metrics, I honestly do not care about how you get to the place, right? As long as you get there. I assess how you're thinking, right? How is a PM thinking about these things? And after the first kind of three weeks, to three to six weeks, once we started to get into a regular cadence of, hey, this is me. We have a one-on-one cadence going. You're starting to get in with your teams. You're starting to understand your triad. You're starting to do all that work. Then it becomes a time to just introduce this concept slowly, right? So that by the end of the kind of like first quarter that I'm with them, they're starting to think about prioritization and these guardrails in that way. And so the reason why I I used to just jump into things like this very early as a newbie product leader, you know, bad newbie product leader, bad, like, because, (laughs) right? Like one thing I think you realize once you start onboarding enough PMs is they have just a world of things to get into whenever they're joining your company. And it's a lot easier to gain trust on the things that people are screaming about them for, right? Being helpful there, right? Versus trying to make many yous as you're trying to like create and craft your team culture. So take the time, take time, get the critical things out of the way first, help them solve whatever fires because PMs never really, it's very rare for PMs to just land in places where everything's just hunky-dory and (laughs) everybody's happy. Super rare. If you have found an environment like that, stay for a while (laughs) because I'm telling you, it's wild out here. And really just as a product leader, really just kind of take them on slowly. The idea, like the onboarding process 
I think in general for a new PM, it's like six months, right? Think about it in that time scope as opposed to like two weeks a month, even that first quarter. When you're thinking about like your new product managers and you're trying to assess like where their minds are at early on, how are you telling if they're making the right decisions? How are you knowing? I've worked with a lot of founders. I work with a lot of people who always ask like, how can I tell if my product managers are good? Right. And I find that a lot of times too, they'll blame the product managers, but they actually are good, right? They just have no idea how to actually look at the decision-making quality. And it might be that some of the problems are actually happening further down the line in the development or further upstream in the decision-making. So what's your advice for people who might not be really up to speed about this decision-making? Like, what do you look for in your team to say like, yes, this person gets it. Maybe they need just a smidge of coaching, right? But they can actually make great decisions. I look at two things. One, what information are they gathering when it comes to making a decision? What I'll ask someone to do is kind of break down your last decision for What went in it? Who did you talk to? And I'm trying to get the outcome kind of out of it, right? Because that could have been luck. Either way, good luck, bad luck. And so I want to look at who did they talk to? How did they come to that decision? What were some of the alternate routes that they thought of, right? If somebody's not thinking about, you know, option B, option C, they're probably not thinking about the decision, right? And then also, what did they not want to do? How did they come up with that anti-list of things, right? And generally kind of digging into those questions, usually in an informal setting, right? Like, I love to do this during like one-on-ones. I just said we're walking, but it's post-COVID, right? I'm on the phone (laughs) and we're kind of walking and talking, right? Let's talk through. If they're giving a lot of thought to their decisions, but they're kind of making they can do better at like framing or they can do better at communicating things to people or like if, if it's a tactical thing, then it's like, okay, let's go, let's get you some coaching. That's something we can fix, right? But if they're, think of themselves as like king of the world or I'm the decision person, right? Or this is my favorite, I'm the idea man. People come to me, I make the ideas and I execute. Then it's not going to work, right? Because you come from the cowboy school of, product management and I don't have time for cowboys. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Yeah. That becomes like an ego thing. That's like a personality thing where it's funny. Like I've been interviewing so many people about the podcast, so many different product leaders. And that is the one thing that keeps coming up. Like I look for people who are curious and I look for people who are humble, right? Enough to come up with multiple decisions and maybe not know the answer right off the bat. And I think that makes such a world of difference for succeeding in product management. And it's something that we don't really look for in the soft skill department sometimes. Like we, people who don't know how to hire product managers start to gravitate towards people with the bigger bravado and the quick to actness, right? And that's where you land yourself in trouble because they'll just act on things that they don't have information on. And we end up with a bunch of product managers who are egomaniacs <laughs> who don't question their decisions and who don't go into really exploring all the options that you're actually talking about and looking at things like survival metrics from an angle of maybe this isn't the right thing to do. And how do we know if it's not? And when do we actually take the time to stop and consider that? Yeah, I think it's so, 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 so critical. I'm joking about cowboys, but like, that's kind of how they act, right? Like, you know, they're, they roll into this town town being the company. They, they have their pistols on their hips and they're there to create order, right? They're, they're the new sheriff in town, right? Or they're wrestling through town. Like, I, I don't know where this metaphor is going. Anyway, uh, <laughs> the, but the gist is, 
<laughs> it just is like they're the Clint Eastwood type, right? It all figured out. And so, you know, managing these types in the past, right? Like, even if they come across as the genius product manager, his, you know, their last eight releases in a row have been perfect, right? Their bodies in their wake, right? Like, people won't go talk to that customer success manager that has to manage the fallout or that salesperson that, like, has to scream kind of internally as they wait for this genius to come across and give them the, the word from high. They're not really cross-collaborative. And right now, as product gets more and more complicated, we don't have time for this anymore. There's a lot more regulation to have. There's a lot more people interested. There are new voices, new points of view. And to be honest, most software development is bad, right? So if you, wanna, if you want to make something better, you have to embrace the new way. And that, that's mostly cross-collaborative. And a PM's not going to get there if they have too much pride and ego. Yeah, we were just talking about this too with the sales team and how the sales team is always the bad guy to the product managers, right? And they, they're they like, oh, they're awful. They're just, uh, you know, selling ahead of the roadmap and they just tell everybody everything and they don't want to work with us. Like, how do you get your product managers to be more collaborative with the sales team? Like, what, what are the types of things that you've seen work to help break down those barriers besides like not hiring cowboys? <laughs> Well, I think one of my roles as a product leader is to build bridges to these other organizations, right? Regardless of where the culture is, where when I land there, my job is to go get coffee with folks, start to interrogate like why things are the way they are. Why aren't we working cross-collaboratively? And then start to build out a process or ways for people to connect. Because when, once I start having these coffees, and you know, these coffees range from you know, your VPs, your C-suite, your, down to your ICs, right? You start to find out these projects that people are working on. And then you start to find out targeted places that you can move people. Hey, you're the PM for Project X. Well, Project X, you know, the salesperson, the account manager for Project X has been looking for, you know, some, you know, enablement. She'll be super happy if you just go over there and just just talk to her for a second. All it takes is these small conversations, right? And back to that non-cowboy thing, I think even if a PM has been trapped in the culture where it's very siloed, they start to see their value. And what they can add to other teams, that starts to create this effect where things become far more cross-collaborative as opposed to sales to sales ahead of the roadmap. Engineering is not doing enough. Marketing doesn't really feed us good leads. So like I, we're not really getting what... Like all these excuses that'll come up from different teams or about different teams when you have your internal product meetings, right? They probably don't talk. <laughs> I can almost guarantee you they don't talk. And so I think if you're a product leader in that space... If you hear people complaining about the sales team, you know what you should do? You should not jump in to that complaining. You should probably go to the nearest sales like leader that you can find and just go, hey, I'm Adam. Nice to meet you. I'm the product leader for X. Yeah, I'd like to talk to you about what's going on. How, how are things? And so, you know, eventually you'll find out where, like, salespeople aren't sociopaths. They aren't really, like, people are trying to go, do a good job. Most of the time, the only thing that you need to do, right, is to just create that bridge. Just go say hello. It'll do wonders. Yeah. Do you recommend to like involving the other teams in setting survival metrics? You, you mentioned like ops can give you the insights. Like what should product managers do to be collaborative there? I think at first, driving one-on-one conversations with these different stakeholders, because it's going to be a trust building, ex- it's a trust building exercise. Because if they see, especially when you start doing presentations about progress and people start seeing their needs and, and thoughts reflected back to them before they have to ask, they go, oh, that person, that product person, they care. 
do that together as a team, all of a sudden their team thinks very highly of your team. And that's when you start getting that trust maturity. And from there, you can just involve each other in the process, right? It gets really easy to just go walk on by and say, hey, we talked about back to like hops. We talked about AWS cost. Has that changed? Let's go get a coffee and talk about like kind of what are your initiatives for this quarter um, as a team. And let, let's make sure that gets reflected back into what we're building. I think that's great advice for product managers to help step out and meet the rest of the teams and make sure their metrics are solid from every perspective too. So thanks so much for being on the podcast, Adam. If people want to read more about your work and your blog post, where should they go? They should go to theadamthomas.com. I promise you, I am not a narcissist. I couldn't get adamthomas.com. So, <laughs> theadamthomas.com, also Twitter, of course. And I have a Substack like every other product leader. So you'll find me at theadamthomas.substack.com. And all of these links, I'm sure, will be in the show notes. Yes, they will be. So thanks again. Thank you for tuning in to the Product Thinking Podcast. And Emerson, I hope you're listening to this so you can see us name drop you a billion times. <laughs> we'll see you <laughs> next week on Wednesday with another episode of Dear Melissa.